0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone, and special welcome to all the people who are new tonight. There isn't a program host, but uh, some of the old timers in the group, if uh, you see somebody at the end of the program looking like they don't know what they're doing or like they'd like to connect with someone, please. It's always nice to introduce yourself, even if you've seen somebody around for a long time. And it's nice to normalize what we're doing here, that there are human beings who are interested in using the mind to know the mind. Because it can feel culturally a little strange that, you know, people would put aside the time to do the practice or to study this kind of practice. But it's nice to, like, in so many different ways, you know, 80, 90 different people in the room tonight, and in all these different ways, each of us have found a motivation, have found like a, a relevance to using the mind to know the mind. It's so common. Once, once you start doing that, it just... How could I have not been interested in the mind all these years? It is just, it's literally the most amazing thing (laughs) that we go through life so busy doing this and that that often, maybe the great majority of the time, it just doesn't seem relevant to be interested in the mind and what the mind is doing and how the mind is. And part of that is, you know, this Powerful assumption that gets made unconsciously, just habitually, that the mind, the activity of the mind, the way the mind is relating, the particular attitudes that are present in the mind, there's this very deep, pervasive assumption that that's me. And because it, that assumption that it's me, it doesn't feel relevant to look at it. So we just continually look out into the world of experience without using awareness to also be interested in the mind that's knowing, the way that mind that's knowing, the way it is. Oh, this is how that mind is. This is the particular filter or particular attitude through which I'm experiencing my life, interacting with experience. So this is this whole area of mindfulness of mind. And it's a big part of our practice. You could even say that so much of mindfulness of the body, you know, the body being much more available, much more concrete of an experience to tune into, to open to, is in support of mindfulness of the mind. I mentioned this last week for those who weren't here that, you know, it's not like the, mind, the experience of the body is over here and the experience of the mind is over here. That somehow they're located in two different places. But the experience of the body is right here. And the experience of the mind is right here. And there's no space, there's no different location for the body and mind. Unless the mind is is, is imposing a conceptual map that says the body's here, or the body's here and the mind's here, you know. But those are just ideas, conceptual ideas, where the the, the thinking mind in a sense, creates the idea of space and location. This is here, this is there. You're over here. I live over there. But the actual subjective experience, in terms of being a practitioner, being mindful, being awake, there's only this being known. And this being known is only this. It's not like two things or three things or ten things. The whole world of diversity of this and that, good and bad, me and you, body and mind, diversity arises through the mapping process, the conceptual mapping process. But in a more pure way of being awake, being mindful, there's just this. I'm not saying that there aren't different facets or different qualities of this, but it's all here and now. So by being mindful of the body and stabilizing the attention and developing more balance, more steadiness, more continuity of mindful awareness with the body, then all of that steadiness, all that balance, that clarity is available to know the mind because the mind's right there, knowing the body, being aware of the body. So any filters, any mental qualities that are present Would be there in the knowing of the body, affecting or impacting how the body is being known. So it's not like we have to go to a different place to know the mind. So remember, there's uh, in this discourse, this collection of teachings uh, from the Buddha on mindfulness, he has four ways of establishing mindfulness. Establishing it through mindfulness of the body which might be the breath, might be just an awareness of the posture of the body or awareness of the activity of the body, the general sensations of the body but knowing the body or you could say knowing the five physical senses so it includes seeing and hearing, smelling and tasting as well as the tactile experience of the body the sensations of the body. That's one of the ways to establish mindfulness. And then the last couple of weeks we were talked before mindfulness of the mind, I was talking about mindfulness of feeling tone. Now this is an aspect of the mind. In fact, the four foundations, one is the body, the other three really refer to the mind. So in referring to the mind, the body says, learn to be mindful of the feeling tone, the pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality of whatever's being known in the moment. You might be knowing a mental experience, or you might be knowing a physical experience. But in terms of mindfulness of feeling, the question is, is this pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? And tune into that. Because in any moment of experience, that experience is either being known as pleasant, unpleasant, or you can't tell, which we call neutral. And you can tune into that. It's actually very relevant, as I've been talking about. And the Buddha makes a big deal about being mindful of feeling tone. Because as I'm sure you can guess or know directly from your experience, the feeling is what so many of our mental, emotional habits are conditioned by the feeling. It's like, it's not so much, like if you really like being here at Common Ground, and right now you're just, you know, oh, I don't ever want to leave. I want to come every day. You might think that you're really attached to common ground. But actually, more accurately, the mind is attached, is reacting to the pleasantness of being here. It's the pleasantness that the mind is reacting to more than the being here. Being here is the cause for pleasantness to arise for some of you, maybe aversion for others of you. But in any case, some feeling tone is arising neutrality, pleasantness, unpleasantness. And the mind reacts to the feeling tone. That's what the mind reacts to. That's why the Buddha emphasizes that. And then the third foundation or the third way of establishing mindfulness, the Buddha suggesting we be mindful of the shape of the mind itself. So not just the feeling tone, but just the general qualities or shape or texture of the mind. Is the mind contracted? Well, I'll just read as I did last week. Just go through what he actually says. The Buddha invites us to know, is there lust in the mind or is the mind without lust right now? You can just check your own mind. Right? We all have a mind. It's all colored in one way or another. So is it colored by lust? Or if not, can you notice the non-lust in the mind? So the absence of craving in the mind. Because if you can't notice that, how do you know there's no lust? So if you can't see lust, then maybe this is the experience of non-lust. He says... Notice if there's anger or non-anger in the mind. So check. Is there any kind of pushing away, any aversiveness, any fear or not in the mind? Is the mind deluded or non-deluded? Is it like one expression of delusion is thinking you know? Because when we think we know, we stop noticing, we stop knowing, right? Because I know. I know how it is. I know what it's like being at common on Sunday night. So we disconnect. Same with our partners. Like when we're with a friend or a partner. Oh yeah, I know. So we, we don't actually show up. We're not in that raw, open, uh, undefined place of just like what, who and what this is. It's not something that can be grasped with an idea. It's a lived process. So we can't define it. So delusion is when we've defined things, we think we know, and we've stopped being open, stopped being mindful. That's not being, you know, when we've defined things. That's not being mindful. It's being deluded. Now sometimes our deluded notions are close to the dynamic way that it is, and sometimes our deluded notions are not even the same ballpark. But even when, like, for example, I could have the idea, you know, everything's changing that idea is not the experience of being present to the ephemeral changing nature of experience. But it's relatively close. I mean, as a concept to be attached to, that's more wholesome, more accurate, I guess you'd say, than some other concept. Like, nothing seems to change, you know? It's the same old me, the same old you, same old Sunday night at Common Ground, same old teachings. It's always been this way. That, you know, that sort of strong belief that, you know, things don't change is to be really disconnected from the underlying reality of things being in motion. So that's delusion, noticing delusion or non delusion. And then the Buddha suggests is the, to notice is the mind contracted or not? You know, is it distracted? or not, right now? Is the mind great? The quality of the mind, the shape of the mind, great? Expansive? Like, every, the, the object of awareness is all of it, or is the mind narrow, where it's tuning into one aspect, and not aware of the whole? So again, it's not judgmental, we're just noticing, just interested in how the mind is. Is it tuning into something very specific to the exclusion of everything else. Always open. You can do this with hearing. You know, when you use mindfulness of hearing, you can notice like sometimes the attention locks into one particular sound and the mind is completely unaware of all the other sounds. And other times it's as if the mind or the sensitivity to hearing is like kicked back and you're hearing everything all together as one thing. That's great, mind. Mind. Narrow mind is when the mind is tuning into one thing. When you do loving-kindness practice, you're just developing the actual experience of loving-kindness. Sometimes that loving-kindness is very much dependent on bringing to mind one person, your cat at home, let's say, or your niece or your, you know, some mentor of yours who's just really been there for you. And other times, the feeling of loving-kindness is going outward everywhere. You even love the cushion you're sitting on the space of the room you're in, nothing isn't included. Nothing is away or not part of your radiation, your expression of love. It goes everywhere equally. So that would be a great mind as opposed to a narrow mind. And we can notice that about the mind. The Buddha invites us to notice whether the stillness, the settledness of mind is surpassable or unsurpassable. So whatever stability the mindfulness has now, could it be even more stable? Which is, means that it's surpassable, right? It could be even better. Or is it unsurpassable? Like this stillness, this peacefulness, quietness of mind is fully developed. It's unsurpassable. There's no quietness beyond this quietness. Buddha invites us to notice that. He says, he asks us to notice whether mind is concentrated or unconcentrated. And the way Joseph Goldstein um, describes this is, is the one-pointedness of mind, the stillness of mind, dependent on conditions, or is it independent? Meaning, no matter what comes and goes in our field of experience, the stillness, the presence, the balance, the steadiness would be remain unperturbed. So concentrated means that the mind, the, the concentration, the stillness, the clarity isn't dependent on conditions like nobody walking in the room and being loud. So if your concentration is developed then anything could happen. Fire could break out in the building. You do whatever you need to do But the stillness, the balance, the steadiness of the attention, the mindful presence, wouldn't be disturbed no matter what's coming and going. That's called being concentrated. And then the last thing the Buddha suggests we check out is, is the mind liberated or not? Is the mind realizing the reality of non-grasping, the experience of non-grasping, or is there still grasping, struggling reactivity going on in the mind? However subtle that might be, like even the reactivity of really liking the stillness of the mind—you know, just taking the stillness personally—is a reactivity. That's not a liberated mind. So you just—you can see that from more, a more gross level, like is there anger or not in the mind? Is there greed or not in the mind? To this more subtle, like is the mind liberated or not? Concentrated or not? The Buddha is just inviting, you know, just um, putting out some questions or some parameters that we can use just to get to know the mind. As I mentioned last week, we're trying to develop this fluency, this competence of knowing the mind. So this is one way. We can just literally ask these questions. Greed or no greed in the mind now? Anger or no anger in the mind? Distracted mind or not? contracted or not contracted, and on and on from there. Probably remember last week I read this quote, you know, the Buddha says, there's no fire like lust, no grip like anger, no net like delusion. It's another way to gain this competency or fluency, so we can just notice the heat of greed, like when we really want something, the mind's getting worked up, we see that heat, that frenzy, excited quality of lust or greed or wanting. Or we might be seeing the coolness and the easefulness of contentment, of not needing things to be other than they are. So one of those two might be happening right now, probably are is happening right now. Is the mind feeling pretty settled in how it is? Not demanding something different than how it is. Or maybe you have a lot of pain in your body and you're really craving not having that. Lusting after the body you used to have. Or the grip of anger. You know, are you noticing that grip of fear or the grip of impatience or the grip of somebody in your life that's causing you problems and you want to get rid of that person who causes you problems? And then the release that we can feel, the opposite of inclusivity where whatever's showing up in our life, there's a sense of, yeah, you too, this too. I was reading somebody's uh, a teacher and he was talking about his uh, beginning of his practice where he ran into his first teacher and the line that really struck him was uh, something like, his teacher said something like, meditation is one big yes to everything that arises or that everything that's showing up in your life. That's the practice of meditation. Meditation. Now, it's a bit of a cliche, but there's a it's a really useful, powerful way, simple way to remember the practice. And it's really uh, pointing to this release. The opposite of the grip of aversion is that cosmic yes. If that's a release. Like I don't have to say no to anything because I know my way, the way is to say yes to include. So instead of the grip of aversion where we're, Demanding that, like, until this goes away, I can't be safe. We're saying, I'm already safe. No matter what comes, it's okay. That's a release. Not to be demanding anything. And then instead of the net of delusion, delusion, you know, all the, whenever we're disconnected, that means there's only one way to disconnect, to be deluded, which is to construct a story, an idea of who I am, what's going on, or whatever, to think something and then to get identified with the thoughts, to mistake the thought we have for the way it is. And that's how we disconnect. Like, I can have the thought of being separate from all of this, and to the degree I identify with thoughts of separation, being apart, then I get, I realize the experience of separation. So instead of the net of delusion, there can be the freedom, it's like a free fall, when we're not projecting a concept on the moment, like I'm here as a deluded human being, suffering human being who wants to be free, studying Buddhist meditation practice. That's that's called the net of delusion. It sounds right, right? But to be identified with that thought, I'm an unenlightened human being who's taking up the practice of meditation in order to become free, the identification with that thought is the net of delusion. The mind in a moment or in moments not caught, not identified with any thought, including that thought, it's like a free fall. That's the absence of the net of delusion. That's called a moment of freedom or moments of freedom. The mind, the heart, not bound, not imprisoned by the identification to any thought, any concept, any idea. The idea of being 55 and soon to be 56 or the idea of being a male or a female or neither male nor female. A lot of people these days are feeling liberated from not having to identify with one gender or another. Or, you know, the different pockets or different categories that get projected out through culture. So this is partly what we're discovering with this, uh, just observing the mind in terms of the presence of delusion or the absence of delusion. Is there a net that our mind right now is caught in some story or drama or thought or not or is there the space of freedom is there a net of delusion or the space of freedom well that's a stupid thought well probably if that's what's going on our mind we're identified with the thought that's a stupid thought and that's called the net of delusion And it's not that the thought itself is bad, but it's the identification, the clinging, taking that thought to be reality that is the net, not the thought itself. There's nothing wrong with having that thought flitter through the mind, oh, this is hogwash. But to the degree the mind takes that personally, that's what I think, that's the truth, or I don't know. You can be identified that way, too, like, I don't know if that's true. Like being identified with the doubt, wanting to know it's true, but I don't really know it's true. That also can be a net. Otherwise, thoughts can just be thoughts. They don't actually affect the space. The space isn't affected until the mind gets identified in the net, caught in the net. It's like, you know, you think about a net, you can just imagine a fishing net, it's only a problem when there's something substantial there to get stuck in the net. But when there's no clinging, no formation of a self, then what's the net going to catch? So that's the idea like thoughts, they only catch when there's a sense of a somebody looking for ground. We use our thoughts and the identification to thought to create a sense of ground, to give some shape to what we refer to as ourself. But there are times when we don't have to do that. We realize those moments. If we're paying attention to the mind, you'll notice, even within a normal day, there will be moments where non-delusion is the quality of the mind, not delusion. The mind isn't fixed, isn't so attached. I mean, at least in that direction, isn't clinging to some story, some drama, some idea. It's less of that, or none of that even. And what the mind, if you notice, if you're awake in that moment, you'll notice the experience of space, or freedom, the freedom of no net. So this is a nice little quote to memorize. No fire like lust, no grip like anger, no net like delusion. And then you can just bring in the other half so that it's balanced. Like, okay, instead of no fire like lust, no cool ease like contentedness and generosity and letting things go. No grip of anger, no release of kindness, of inclusivity, of acceptance, no net of delusion, So that's that space of freedom. And this really, uh, I think, evokes interest in the mind, knowing that we can go from the fire of lust to the coolness, the easefulness of contentment, from the grip of anger to the experience of release, of just including, saying yes, from the net, getting caught up in our dramas, our projections, to the sense of free fall, open space, non-clinging, of non-delusion. Just those alone. And it's really pointing out this uh, the three wholesome and three unwholesome roots. So I want to talk tonight about this progression of getting to know the mind. Like I started last week, that as practitioners, people following these teachings of the Buddha, Being mindful, being mindful of the body and the mind. If someone asks you, who's your teacher? You say the Buddha. And if they ask you, well, what did he teach? You say, he taught to be mindful of the body and mind, the way it is. And if they say, well, how do you be mindful of the body and the mind? Well, the body's like this, and the mind's like this. And they go, well, I kind of know what it means to be mindful of the body, but what does it mean to be mindful of the mind? And you'd say, well, the first step is you've got to know, not just intellectually, but experientially, you have to know oh my God, there is a mind here. Because a lot of the time, although there is a mind here always, of course, most of the day we're operating as if there isn't a mind. It doesn't mean that if someone asked you, you wouldn't say, oh yeah, there's a mind here. It just means the mind is not aware of the mind. And maybe even right now. So just let's check. How do you know there's a mind here? Right? How do we know there's a mind here? Well, I'm feeling a little self-conscious right now. Right? And that self-consciousness isn't exactly a body experience. There may be some reverberation in my body from that mental experience of self-consciousness. But the... Physical reflection or experience is not the whole experience of self-consciousness, right? And I know, you know, I am aware that I'm aware. That's a body. So there's a lot that can be known that's pointing to the experience of what we call, we got to give it a name. It's always problematic to label things, but... It's even more problematic not to give it a label, so let's just call it mind. So there are a lot of aspects of this experience that point to what we're calling the mind. Now we have to cultivate an interest in the mind, that there is a mind here, and instead of personalizing the mind, it's just like, uh, like I mentioned right at the beginning, because it is so much synonymous with who I think I am, it feels so appropriate, like not to look at it or not to know it. Remember, I mentioned last week about the Wizard of Oz and the Wizard behind the curtain. Now, don't pay attention to that guy behind the curtain. It's like, oh, you don't need to look. But we do want to look, we want to open. Oh, yeah, there is this mind here, it can be known. Once once we understand that the mind is can be known as an event or as a, maybe a better word, is, as a phenomena, like just like the sound of my voice is a phenomena that can be known, the temperature of the room touching your skin, that temperature is a phenomena that can be known. Thinking this is a great talk or a dumb talk, is that movement of thought is a phenomena that can be known? So the mind and the particular coloring or shape or feeling of the mind, that's also a phenomena that can be known. The space of the mind can be known. It's like this. And that really brings us to the second. So the first step is just to have some intuitive sense there is a mind. And it's relevant. Maybe I'll add that piece to it. Like there is a mind and knowing it is relevant. And then that Strengthens the attention, like the interest. Strengthens the quality of interest and persistence, meaning we're going to bring the attention back to the mind over and over again. Which leads to the second discovery. So the first is there is a mind. The second is it feels like this. In the same way that I can put my attention on my knee, I can notice the sensations in my knee or my hip or any obvious physical sensation, and I can notice this is a little unpleasant, or this is a little pleasant, or this is, I can't really tell, it's neither pleasant or unpleasant, so I'll call it neutral. The same thing, if if the mind is a phenomena that can be known, then it has a feeling tone that can be known. So how does your mind feel now? Is your mind pleasant? Is the general tone or feeling tone of your mind, the way your mind is, or you could use heart synonymously with the word mind. So, some of you are more here with your mind, some of you are here, some maybe down in your gut. <laughs> there's no location for the mind, or this is a location for the mind. So, there's, these are just cultural habits. It's different, actually, in different cultures, you know, where people point, like me, or me, or me. Maybe there are other places too, Me. <laughs> I don't know about those cultures, but clearly, you know, there is this. And the question is, how does it feel? Is it pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant, the mind? That's the second step. How is the mind? That's a useful question. Is it contracted, heavy, unpleasant? Or is it light and buoyant, nimble and pleasant, enlivened? That's the second. Then the third, see, it's just all about a refinement of attention. First, we've got to know there's a mind and it's relevant. And then we just have to notice the general feeling tone of the mind. And then if we can do that, then that means the attention is steady enough that we begin to see or know, discern, that the mind is an unfolding process. So instead of it superficially being seen as just as a phenomena, like, oh, it's like this now, we see that, yeah, it's like this now, but the this is one moment of a continuing, a continuous unfolding process, the mind is on the way to becoming something else, like it's getting more tight and contracted, more entangled, or it's becoming less and less entangled and more free, so the mind is always unfolding always on the way to becoming whatever it's going to become next. And that can be seen, that can be known. It can be discerned. But it's a whole level of refinement. You see, the mindfulness has to be much more steady and continuous to begin to see or know how, the, how it's unfolding right now. Are we going, are we on our way to hell or are we on our way to heaven? Right? Is our mind getting happier, lighter, less entangled? More loving, more accepting, more fearless, or more paranoid, more self conscious, more needy, more demanding, more hateful. So, how is the mind unfolding? That's the third level of this fluency, this competence in knowing the mind. First, just recognize there is a mind and it's relevant. It feels like this. It's an unfolding process. How interesting. This is the birth of knowing whether what's happening is skillful or unskillful. There's only really one way for a human being to know, like in terms of karma. This is really the world of karma. So in Buddhism, karma has a very specific meaning. It means that It's pointing to the intentional activity of the mind. Now, the intentional activity may get expressed through my physical actions, like I hate you and therefore I'm going to say this to you. But in terms of karma, what's relevant is that intention to hate in the mind. It's a mental intention of I hate you, I want you to suffer. And so that's why I'm saying this or that's why I'm doing this or i love you i i care for you and that's why i'm doing this or saying this so that activity has consequences and so by seeing that the mind is an unfolding process we be, we can begin to see the governing principles of that unfolding process like is it skillful meaning are things getting lighter more free in the mind or is what's going on unskillful, meaning the mind is uh, moving, unfolding in a way towards more contraction. All of this we have to do without judgment. We just, in terms of the practice, we just want to understand what's going on. How is the mind unfolding right now? So, for example, right now, if you're, if part of what's going on in the mind is a grasping, like really trying to understand, like I think it's important what he's saying. I'm just trying to understand. And there, if some greed has crept in, then you might notice... And, you, and the body can help, right? Because the body reflects what's going on in the mind and it's a little bit more obvious. So if your body's starting to get tight or if you, even energetically, if not physically, you're leaning forward, then you might notice that, oh, I'm going towards hell. You know, things are getting tighter. Or maybe you know, and listening to the talk and appreciating and just getting a sense of the availability of freedom, maybe there's a sense of releasing going on and and a kind of gratitude for having discovered these teachings and kind of on the path and confident that this practice and this inclination of my mind to be mindful is going to lead to good results and a deeper trust of what's unfolding in our life, our lives. And you might notice that sense of things going in a skillful direction. So that's the fourth level of discernment. Can we discern... Well first, I the third is like just seeing that it's an unfolding process. And then the fourth is really seeing if it's skillful or unskillful. And this means that we've uncovered like the general tone of how this mind that's unfolding, how it's unfolding. This will coming back now to the three wholesome and unwholesome roots. that quote I read earlier tonight, lust or greed, anger, and delusion are the three unwholesome roots. So if the mind is going to hell, getting tighter, more contracted, that means there has to be one of the three unwholesome roots as a force operating in the mind. And it can be known, right? Because it's there, here and now, in the mind. So, is there anger or greed or delusion as a force operating part of the unfolding, part of the drive of the unfolding process of the mind right now? And we can just look. Or maybe the force of non-greed, non-delusion, non-aversion, one of those three. Like, you might notice just the general quality of goodwill operating in the mind. Like, I mentioned gratitude, or real patience with your mind now. Or just a sense of, like, willingness to include the way the mind is, the way the heart is. Then you can notice, oh, that's the force of non aversion or goodwill or kindness. And it's a whole it's it's part of this wholesome unfolding of the mind right now. Now this is important. This refinement is actually going somewhere. So there is a mind, it's relevant, it feels like this. It's an unfolding process. It isn't just one thing the mind, but it's an unfolding process driven by either the three wholesome or unwholesome roots. So there's some underlying force for how it's unfolding. And if it's unfolding towards contraction, then it's going to be one of the three unwholesome roots. And if it's unfolding towards release, then there's going to be one of the wholesome roots is operating or a combination of them. And now the, the last, the fifth then, step in getting to know the mind is as we're able to recognize these underlying forces in the mind, the three wholesome or three unwholesome roots, and, and we're able to sort of watch them, know them, as activities in the present moment. It's subtle now. It's a lot more subtle than knowing knee pain or noticing that the body's restless or noticing that we're bored. Those kinds of emotional, physical experiences are relatively easy to notice. These more subtle aspects of the mind require the development of a refined interest in the mind. That's why we start with, there is a mind, and it's relevant. It feels like this. It's an unfolding process driven by greed, anger, delusion, or non-greed, non-anger, non-delusion. And the fifth, then, is seeing that these forces of the mind are not self. They're forces of nature, So when you observe carefully many, 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 many times anger or some expression of aversion, fear, impatience, boredom, hatred, sort of all the different ways the mind expresses aversion. And you watch it many, many times and each time you see it coming and going and having its effect, you see, little by little, you see, if you're just watching in a steady, non-judging way, you see That's not self. I'm not doing that. There is nobody doing that anger, that aversion. It arose due to causes and conditions, and it ceases due to causes and conditions, and there's nobody who is angry. There's anger. I see it. But there's nobody from a subjective, mindful point of view. You don't see the one who's angry. You just see anger arising, affecting the unfolding process of the mind, It's unpleasantness, right, here in the mind. That's what's actually known when you pay attention in a steady, mindful way. And it's liberating to see that anger is not self. Non-anger is not self. So it's not just the unwholesome roots that are not self, but the wholesome roots are not self. In fact, the whole activity, this unfoldingness of the mind, is just nature, But it has to be observed in this very close, continuous, subtle way before that insight dawns on the mind. Now you can, even intellectually, we can get a sense how liberating it would be to deeply recognize that what's unfolding here in terms of body and mind, that both the body, and now we're talking mostly about the mind, and the mind is not self meaning we can just let it be what it is. And surprisingly, maybe, or maybe it makes sense to you, life works so much better. We become such a better person when we just let it unfold. So there's still awareness. It's not like becoming oblivious. There's still a profound presence, but we're not personalizing the unfolding of the body and the unfolding of the mind. But it's not enough to want to not cling, not grasp, not control the unfolding of the body and mind. There's only one way to realize the reality of non-grasping, as Ajahn Chah points us to. The realization of the non-grasping comes when the mind systematically sees what's unfolding and systematically realizes its impersonal nature you actually have to see that the mind is impersonal. You can't believe in emptiness or you can't believe that it's just nature happening. You actually have to see it clearly in experience. You have to be interested in the mind and you have to be interested in the body. Both will lead you to the same place. And like I was saying earlier tonight, getting really interested in the body, you can't help but be interested in the mind. And being really interested in the mind you're going to know the body because they are just reflecting back each other very much. So I'll just end by reading something from Ajahn Chah that Joseph Goldstein has in this chapter, chapter 13, and then I'll open it up for discussion. This is a wonderful quote from Ajahn Chah, one of my favorites. He's this great Thai meditation master, Buddhist monk who died in the early 90s. Within itself, the mind is already peaceful. That the mind is not peaceful these days is is because it follows moods. It becomes agitated because moods deceive it. The untrained mind is stupid. Sense impressions come and trick it into happiness, suffering, gladness, and sorrow. But the mind's true nature is none of these things. Gladness or sadness is not the mind but only a mood coming to deceive us. The untrained mind gets lost and follows these things. It forgets itself. Then we think that it, is, that it is we who are upset or at ease or whatever. But really this mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful, really peaceful. So we must train the mind to know these sense impressions and to not get lost in them. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. So we'll leave it here and uh, open it up. You might have some questions about the talk tonight or your own experiences from your practice, getting to know the mind that you'd like to share with the group. What have you learned or what comes to mind? Did you hear something, Ben? I saw you move your hand. Mary Ellen. Well, the way Mary Ellen asked, how is boredom, aversion, if you didn't hear, her, the way you know the difference between the unwholesome root of greed and the unwholesome root of aversion, they're actually more close than you might think, because they're both a mind that's having a problem with the way it is. It's a reaction. Even delusion is a reaction to the way that it is. It's like disconnecting is one way to react, that's delusion. Delusion. Pushing is another way to react to the present moment. That's aversion. Holding is another way to react. And that's greed. right? So boredom, you know, when you really look at boredom, it's like, ah, oh, this isn't good enough. So there's a subtle or not so subtle pushing away. Like, ah, oh, ah, oh. nothing satisfying. So it's a rejection or a pushing away. It might be subtle. But if you look, you'll see that the mind is uh wanting to be done with, wanting something to be over, so something exciting can come. You know, there may be something you call boredom, but it's much more about wanting something to happen, and that might be greed. So look energetically. Is the mind in some way struggling to push something away, or is it struggling to get something or hold on to something, or struggling to disconnect? Not care about other thoughts that come to mind. Yeah, Julan. Can you talk more about negative mood states? Struggling with that right now. Negative mood states. Why don't you say a little bit more about struggling with negative mood states? Like, what's uh, what's the dynamic? What's the Let's ask this question. What's the problem that you want to solve? Well, you don't have to give the specifics. No, I know. it's just I haven't been practicing as much as I, as I should be and realizing as I move on to speed that that's part of the problem. And I just feel like I've gotten into a cycle and kind of stuck. And, you know, you describe, like, you know, being expansive. It's like, oh, yeah, I used to be like that. <laughs> you know, the, the gesture of each step turning into I'm aware of that. It's like, yeah, that's right. I didn't know I used to. i just kind of getting awareness from that. It's like, I don't know. I mean, I just do it. Yeah. So the Jelan is talking about, you know, when we get away from our practice for a while, it's very common and totally understandable that we're going to, by definition, we're going to get trapped in our mental projections, more of the time, and then when we do get trapped, the the contraction is going to be more intense. Because by definition, what we mean by skillful practice is having skill at not falling into those holes and having skill of getting out of those holes or minimizing the depth of the hole, right? That's what we mean by practice. So by not practicing, of course, and that's how I'd start. I would say something like, of course, honey, you haven't been practicing. Of course, the mental projections seem more real because that's what happens when we don't practice. Our mental projections, the stories we tell ourselves, the dramas that our minds and we together create seem more real. And the mind, the heart is less connected with the underlying mindful reality. You know, the reality we have when we're mindful of it's just thought being known, just sensation being known. So we want to start with, of course, it's like this. And then, once we realize that, there's some stability already, and then we should do the one thing we can do when we're caught up, which is we can let it be a teacher for us. Right? So then, instead of hating yourself for being caught or being seduced by your mental projections, let it teach you a lesson. So to whatever degree the mind is struggling, then you see, oh yeah, there is a mind, it feels like this, yucky, you know? I don't want to be here. That's why we don't practice because once we're not practicing and more caught in our dramas, then the experience of the mind and heart is unpleasant so it's even harder to, to convince herself to practice because it means we have to open to everything that's been set in motion in the mind. And a lot of it is tight and heavy and scary and yucky. So we see it and so we have to acknowledge this feels yucky, this is unpleasant. There is a mind, it's unpleasant. It's an unfolding process. When I hate the unpleasantness of this mind, I go further into the hole. When I see that it's just stuff happening, I get some space around it, a little bit more freedom. still may be yucky, but I'm not uh, reinforcing, I'm not adding on, like we say in Buddhism, shooting the second arrow. Of course, when the mind is yucky, it's yucky. But if we hate the yuckiness, if we judge ourselves, if we push it away or imagine salvation and grab onto that, we just make it heavier. Yuckier. And we have this opportunity to see that the unwholesome roots that are behind the drama that you're caught in or the dramas that you're caught in, we have this possibility of experience, experiencing liberation when you recognize that those underlying roots and all the activity of the mind are not self. And that liberation is as profound as as being liberated from a really pleasant state of mind, right? Because you might have a really expansive state of mind filled with loving kindness. You'd still have to see that it feels like this, pleasant, that it's an unfolding process. It's very skillfully unfolding into to more expanded states. And it's being driven by the quality of kindness, non-aversion, and that's impersonal. And then there will be the liberation from that state, but that liberation is no different than the liberation from a very contracted state, right? So we can realize the impersonal nature of the mind, regardless of what that particular quality of mind is. It doesn't. the The, the experience of freedom doesn't depend on the mind being one way or another. Any state of mind will do to realize freedom. So if you remember that then you don't have to feel like you have to put off your practice. And in some ways, the painful states of mind are easier, easier to have experiences of freedom because all the incentives support the investigation because it's unpleasant. When our states of mind are more often pleasant, we get really lazy because it feels pleasant. So why, why would I practice? You know, why would I be interested in the mind? I'm just going to hang out in the pleasantness of the mind and indulge in it and take it personally. I'm having a really pleasant mind. I must be pleasant. I must be really cool because <laughs> it all feels so nice. And we generally stop showing up at places like Common Ground, you know, or, you know, who knows what we do. But it is, it's actually more challenging to, to have just expansive, pleasant states of mind, wholesome states of mind. Yeah, thanks, Jolan. We need to leave it here. It's 8.30, so we'll just take a second and maybe enough time for a breath together. And we can appreciate our spiritual ancestors from the Buddha on down. People like us, busy lives, complicated lives, who... Heard the teachings, did their best to practice and realize these teachings and became causes for peace, for wisdom and compassion in the world. And now we're the recipients of the teachings. We can be grateful, we can be inspired to cultivate, to become part of this force of wisdom and compassion in the world. Now it's our turn. So may we be persistent, be fearless, and realize the fruit of the practice. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.